I'm Alan from Pop-Up. Hello. Awfully nice to meet you. That's Pop-Up Business School co-founder Alan Donegan, and this is Move Your Business to the United States, the podcast for Mount Bunnell advisors, the consultants who guide you on expanding your business stateside. I'm Nastra Antavakoli-Farr, and we're speaking to businesses who've made the move to find out some do's and don'ts and much more. For this week's episode, Mount Bunnell CEO Sebastian Sauerborn and I caught up with Alan Donegan, the co-founder of Pop-Up Business School. They teach people how to set up a business without any money and without the need for a complicated business plan. Now, what is pretty cool is that they run classes all around the world, from the UK to New Zealand to Namibia. The US was one of the first places they expanded to, so we caught up with Alan to find out more. The company also has a dynamic and dispersed workforce, and Alan also tells us what it's like to run a company with somewhat nomadic workers, a trend that's likely to become more normal in the coming years. Also, don't forget to send in your questions for Mount Bunnell CEO Sebastian Sauerborn, who'll be answering some in each episode. The address is info at mountbunnell.com. Hi, I'm Alan. I'm the co-founder of the Pop-Up Business School, uh, and I travel around the world helping people to start small businesses without spending any money or going into debt. So can you can you tell us what Pop-Up Business School is? Yeah, sure. I started about eight years ago uh, from an interesting experience with the British government. Uh, I went for support to start my own business, and they gave me three workshops, how to write a business plan, finance, where to get money uh, and marketing. And they did more to scare me off starting a business than they did to actually help me. Uh, And based on that experience, I spent a couple of years actually making my business successful, learning there were many different ways to build businesses and eventually designed Pop-Up Business School to do what I felt the British government and education failed to do well. What what was the business you spent a few years doing? I originally started a training business, uh, then we moved on to running kids' entrepreneurial classes in schools, and I did some programs in schools, Um, and then a few other different things. I failed many times at lots of things before I found success. So what exactly is Pop-Up Business School? If you had to describe it to someone who's never heard of you guys, how does it work? We provide completely free two-week-long training courses that will help you create a business with no debt doing something you enjoy. That's the the summary of it. I had a uh, I looked at your website and looked at the little trailer that that you had there, which was uh, uh, looked very cool. And um, so one of the, th- the sentences that stuck with me that you said, and you just repeated it now, that it's basically free for the people who attend those courses. Uh, and you said you're being paid for that, but it, it, in the video it didn't really elaborate who is paying you for that. So how does that work? How does the business model work? You want to know where the money is coming from. <laughs> for example, yeah. <laughs> um, we get paid by three main groups of people. Uh, number one is housing associations, uh, and they work with some of the hardest to reach people, and we help them to create their own income. Why would a housing association want to do it? They want residents that are financially stable. They want to help them make income and build strong communities. Uh, Councils, uh, they want to create economically vibrant areas. So different councils around the country support us. Uh, And then corporate sponsors. 
Um, and they do it for a whole variety of reasons. But those three groups sponsor the pop-up business school, and then we give it away to the communities that need it the most. And you said like one course lasts two weeks? Yeah, two weeks long. And how many uh, participants are there like in one, in one course? On average this year, I think we've had 68 per course. Wow, so some have been really high. The one in Westminster, I think, had 180. Uh, some of them are a bit smaller. Um, we've run, we were doing the figures today, I think about 44 two-week-long courses this year. And how many sort of trainers or tutors would, would be kind of take care of one of these courses? There's normally a team of two to four people, depending on the number that runs the course. Uh, and they're normally in a shopping center or a shopping mall. Um, and you get a bunch of entrepreneurs in this empty shop, teach them how to build businesses. And the reason we do it in a shopping mall or a shopping center is because they can come up with the idea in a workshop and then just walk to the front of the shop to test the idea. Uh, so around 40% of people will get their first sale before the end of the workshop. So what do they sell, for example? Give, give some example of something that started there, then and there in, in, in that class. Everything you could imagine. Um, we've had, you get the food businesses, the cake businesses, the Caribbean patties. That was a lady called Dolores who did amazing Caribbean food. Um, there's Katie and Andrew who started an escape room. Uh, they like locking people up. Uh, there's people who did um, YouTube channels, podcasts. We had a drone flying school. We had zombie fitness training. We've had logistics businesses, consultants, cleaning businesses. One of the foundational questions is, what do you enjoy doing? Because you could start a business doing anything. Why would you pick something you don't like? never understood that so we try and get people to think about what do they actually enjoy doing and then build a business around something they're going to be excited to do every monday because that's the opposite of most people's existence i agree most, with you yeah <laughs> yeah most people have a, have a dread on sunday right they get like incredibly anxious some people have a true condition you know it's almost a condition like a mental health condition sunday panic attack yeah <laughs> so Alan, you talked about the three classes the British government gave you, which um, which put put almost put you off, but didn't. Um, so so what's it like at Pop Up Business School? If if I sign up for two weeks, first of all, how do I get in? Um, like, um, can I just sign up? Do I have to? Um, is there an application process, and I have to be selected? And um, also, yeah, what goes on in those two weeks? What goes on? What happens? Um, so we have an events page on the website. You can sign up for a free ticket uh, and come along. Um, and one of the things we've always wanted on Pop-Up, it is free for anyone. I don't care what race, religion, sex, gender, age. It's free for everyone. But can everyone come or do they need to sort of um, show, do they need to apply to get in? You need to sign up for a free ticket. Okay. We've not yet like had an event that we've got close to having standing room only. So it's getting close to the stage where I have to do that. But at the moment, every event, we have enough space. Um, so you just sign up for a free ticket, come along. Uh, when you turn up, uh, day one is how to build a business with no money. So we go through five different ways to start without going into debt. Uh, because one of the biggest beliefs out there in the world is it takes money to make money. And it's not true. 
There are so many ways to generate revenue before you have spent so many ways. Um, day two is how do you sell? Because uh, that's the thing everyone puts off when they're launching a business. They like to have a legal structure and documents and tax all lined up, but they avoid selling. And what actually generates the revenue? The sales. Um, day three is how to build a website for free. And we sit down, get out the laptops, launch websites. Um, one of my favorite emails I got recently, there was a guy called uh, Lance who came along to one of the courses. He didn't want to launch his website. He was embarrassed about it. He thought it looked amateurish. Uh, I snuck up behind him and pressed publish when he wasn't looking. <laughs> <laughs> launched it and I got an email recently saying that uh, he'd won over a quarter of a million dollars worth of business oh, wow. through the, um, he said, crappy website that I had helped him launch. That's a very good point, you know. I mean, I've seen many more crappy websites making a lot of money, you know, than seeing polished websites. I mean, I've seen a lot of polished websites make not very much money at all. It's very true, yeah. Done is better than perfect. Exactly. Like, get it out there. Did, did, did he spruce up the website? Now that he has sales, did he pay someone to spru spruce it up? <laughs> I think that's the funny thing. Like, once they realize you don't actually have to. Yeah. One of the very first courses, we had an incredible guy called Tony who was a retail consultant. Uh, he did some... SEO, search engine optimization, to get his website to show up for the term retail consultant. And he turned over over 100 grand in his first year uh, through that. It was a completely free website. Didn't cost him a penny. Uh, and you'd think if you've made 100 grand, you would upgrade. He was like, why would I bother? It works as it is. Yeah. And he kept it for five years before he eventually got a proper domain name. Um, but I think people feel as though it needs to be completely polished and perfect before they launch it. Yes, yes, I agree. Uh, and that's not always the case. You're better off getting out there, getting your first few customers and launching and getting feedback because it always changes. Yes. As soon as you talk to a customer, <laughs> they go, that's not quite what I want. And then you have to change anyway. Yeah. So, Alan, the, the name of the business is Pop-Up Business School. So Pop-Up, I'm thinking you guys don't have an office or, you know, a bricks and mortar place. Uh, t tell us more about that. Where where do you run the school out of? So we actually, originally, I wanted to start a proper business school. Um, but when I looked like at it... Like a physical building. A physical yeah. building. I did the sums and we would have needed at least a quarter of a million to deck out the building, do the rent, set up the stuff. And there was no way I was going into debt to do it. So we thought, what's the next best version? Well, we'll do a pop-up business school. And that's literally was the thought. We thought we'd borrow people's venues. Like with, you can find a venue. And it is amazing what we've been able to borrow. We've borrowed the most incredible shops in amazing shopping centers. One of our sponsors is an incredible company called Hammerson. They own the Bullring in Birmingham, Brent Cross, Bista Village. Uh, and they give us shops to help inspire entrepreneurship. Mm. And it is incredible what you can borrow for free. So you mean like disused shops? Because yeah, there's I see empty, a lot of shops, empty everywhere. shops all the time, yeah. There's empty buildings everywhere. Yeah. Why not just borrow what's sat there rather than pay for your own? Yeah. It's a very good idea, yeah. But so tell us about your first event, because now, now I'm wondering where was it, who turned up? The first event. Uh, when was it? It was in Western Supermare in 2012. Um, 
I'd pre-sold the event, so the client had funded it up front, uh, and we borrowed a, was basically a disused old office that was kind of half used by a woodworking company with this big, empty, horrible space in the front. Um, we borrowed a load of chairs from a church, <laughs> strapped a screen to the wall, and it was very, uh, what's the word, gritty. And we had, I think, 40, 40 different characters turned up from the first, the first event. Um, my business partner, Simon, cringes at the marketing videos we made. Basically, I forced him to sit on my dodgy leather couch in my flat and filmed ourselves talking about the event and put it out. But 45 people turned up uh, and we spent two weeks trying to help these people start businesses however we could. Um, and it was one of the most amazing experiences. It all sounds very positive and uplifting. Yeah, so that that's for sure. And I can... I can see how the atmosphere of that room, you know, which is uh, like a bit like a, a factory, but it's like a brain factory, you know. So you're basically you're building, uh, you're building ideas, you know. Um, there, yeah, it, it sounds incredibly uh, positive, but I think also um, it, it's such a good um, idea. I think also to give people people hope. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I, I'm, I don't know, but I mean, I assume a lot of people are there who. Um, who, who go through maybe difficult periods in their life and don't know what to do, maybe are unemployed or, you know, had some financial setbacks, you know. And I mean, it's such a positive thing um, to look forward to and gives you drive to look into the future. It's an incredible positive uh, initiative business can be, right, if it's done the right way. Entrepreneurship can change your life. Mm -hmm. I mean, one of the things we say is about that, a uh, key moment on an entrepreneur's journey is the first sale mm -hmm. where you've come up with an idea, you've come up with a product, you've gone out and sold it to someone and you're holding 40 quid in your hand that wasn't there before going, I did this, mm -hmm. I did this. Uh, and it can be so life-changing to get that experience, um, which is why we drive so hard. Let's just sell. Let's see if we can generate something. And if you sell before you create you're not going into debt to launch the business and there's very little risk. If you're borrowing a lot of money and setting up a product, a space, and then selling, it's incredibly risky. Mm -hmm. But you're right, if you can help someone feel hope, help them feel like they can dig their way out of whatever problem they've got into, uh, it's, it's incredibly uplifting. And that's what we've spent the last eight years doing, traveling around the world, helping people to build businesses. Um, and we've never owned an office. We've never had a space. We've always just borrowed other people's. Mm. So uh, on that point, um, where is your team and where are, you, where are you holding classes now? Where is my team? I have no idea, actually. Um, <laughs> where do they live? My business partner lives in the Midlands in Leicestershire. Um, we have a lady called Jess who's growing our business in America, in Denver, um, the other team, one of our people called Henry, because we run events and he stays at events, he figured out, why am I paying for rent for a house when I can just live at events and pop up can pay my accommodation? It's a bit cheeky, but he's gone for it and he's gone fully nomadic. Um, so currently we're paying for him to live around the country running events. Um, but we all, yeah, we all live wherever we live. And actually, that's my big experiment for this year coming. My wife and I are selling all our property. 
uh, and we're going to go completely nomadic. So how does that how does that work? And and do you have kids? I do not have kids. That's a big advantage in this particular mission. Uh, if you have kids, it definitely changes the game. Um, Katie and I chose not to have kids. Well, we've chosen so far. Who knows? But like at the moment, we're uh, in them. We're not having kids. And does her job also allow to be like that, live that nomadic lifestyle? Um, we're quite the savers and investors. So we've pretty much reached, well, we have reached financial independence. So she, neither of us have to work again if we don't want to. Uh, so it, it creates a quite a different situation um, whereby most people spend more stuff on bigger cars and bigger houses. We didn't. We stayed in the same flat driving a small car and we took all of our spare money and invested it in assets. So what's it like running a company nomadically? It has its challenges. Um, because this is becoming an increasing thing. More people are living nomadically. I think more people are working nomadically and we think more of, um, you know, freelancers or really small teams, you know, the whole digital nomad thing especially. Yes. So, um, But what you're doing is a bit different because it's not just individuals working nomadically. It's, you know, a company. So, so yeah, what's that like? So I think the downsides are getting communication right when you're not in the same place is quite challenging. Even with new tools, like you've got Slack or Microsoft Teams or whatever it is to be able to communicate, it's still hard to keep everyone on the same page. And we have to work very hard at that. It comes with some great upsides. Like we held our, we hold our annual company retreat in Poland. And uh, we discovered last two, three years ago, that it was cheaper to fly people to Poland than it was to get the train to London. I can imagine that. <laughs> the hotel is a five-star hotel and uh, like 20% of the price. Mm -hmm. They have pierogi you can eat every day and it's amazing. We had snowball fights after the meeting in the evening. It was the most wonderful experience and it saved us a fortune as a company. Mm -hmm. So I think there's some real benefits of doing things differently. Mm -hmm. People get to work at home, they get to be where they need to be. Mm -hmm. We're very much, as long as the job's done, we don't really care what you do. As long as the room's full, the event is successful, we have people to help and the client's happy. Organize yourself as you are. Mm -hmm. That is great for someone who's well-motivated. Yeah. It's great for someone who can get themselves out of bed in the morning. It is dreadful for someone who needs management. And we had one member of staff. I threatened him. I said, uh, if you don't buck up, I'm going to have to micromanage you. Thinking that was a threat. Like, to me, that's a threat. Like, I don't want to be micromanaged. Did he need it? No, he responded and said, that would be great. Oh, yes, wow. please. Uh, <laughs> and I think if you have people who need direction every day and you're not there to give it to them... Mm -hmm it can end up in disaster for you and them. So I think choosing the people is so important. But and it sounds like you also need the kind of boss who trusts their workers and you know doesn't need to you know, look at what they're doing all the time or something. Yes. One of the core principles for the team is everything's okay unless you tell me. Mm. So I will assume you're happy unless you tell me. And I want you to assume I believe you're doing a good job unless I speak up. And that's really important because otherwise you constantly have checking and problems and all sorts of things. So they trust that unless I say something, everything's okay. 
but they know when I do say something, it needs to change. Uh, and then I'm comfortable they will just get on until they speak up and vice versa. So I think there are some principles and way of working that make it easier when you're on the fly and on the move. Um, but you kind of have to learn them through through experience. I think you touched on something very important, right? So, I mean, it, this is obviously not for everyone. I mean, there are people who are just, uh, and I know plenty of people like this who are just comfortably in an office and they need the water cooler talk and they need to have the daily face-to-face -face interaction with, uh, with, with, the, with their colleagues for, for, for all sorts of different reasons. So I think everybody who asks themselves if they want to do it, I think the first question they have to do, as with all things in life, as becoming an entrepreneur or doing this job, you know, you have to ask yourself, is this really, am I, you know, am I, is this, is this me? Or is this some idea that I like, but it's not really what I can do, right? And um, so I think there's, uh, you have to know yourself, you know, quite well um, to be able to make, um, to be able to make the decision because, because you're right. I think, you know, if this is not what you want, um, Or if this is not what you're good at, it, it's going to end. Uh, it's going to end in disaster sooner or later, and and but end up you not being happy, right? Most importantly, right? that's the, that's the consequence. It ends up for both of you bad, the employer and the employee. And I guess the question is, can you get yourself out of bed in the morning and get your excited self excited about doing stuff, or are you the type of person who will hit snooze continuously? If you're the type of person who can't get yourself out of bed without an office to go to and a deadline, working from home is going to be really tough. There are solutions. But it's not just working from home, though. It's working from home with people in different countries or in different cities, you know, so... Or even not working from home. For us, it's traveling to a two-week event. Yeah. Living in an Airbnb, a hotel. Like, we're in this uh, very beige hotel this afternoon. <laughs> And uh, this is my home for tonight. Mm -hmm. um, and you have to kind of get used to it. I'm glad you came to look after me in the evening. Thank you. I would have been very lonely <laughs> without you. Um, but you have to kind of get used to being in these random places and random situations. Um, and I think if you're not happy in yourself, it becomes very difficult when you're out there and you haven't got anyone else to feed off. You've got to generate your own happiness and your own energy. If you can do that, you'll fit in great. Um, if you can't, you're definitely going to struggle. And I'm wondering, are there sort of certain types of business that you think are really well suited to being a nomadic, a nomadically run business? There are definitely types. There are definitely types of businesses. Or like if someone came to you for advice, like, you know, Alan, should I have a nomadic team? You know, we, we want to expand around the world, whatever their business is. Should I have a nomadic team? What, what would you ask them or look at? Is it a personality type, a business structure type, a type of industry? I think my first question would be, what do you sell? Okay. And who do you sell it to? Okay. Because depending on the customer, do you have to physically see your customer? Do you need to go to them? Or can they be looked after remotely? If you can look after the customer remotely and they don't actually need to see you face to face, it doesn't actually matter where you are in the world. And that opens up a whole host of possibilities. Um, so I'd be looking at who the customer is first. Once it is a possibility for you to be nomadic, then I would start asking the questions of, okay, so you could be nomadic. Why do you live where you live? 
And that was actually the question my wife hit me with a year ago. She said, why do we live in Basingstoke? And I didn't really have an answer. <laughs> like, I know why we moved there originally, but I don't have an answer why we live in Basingstoke now. We could live anywhere. Why did we choose Amazingstoke? Um, so then you start going, well, okay, would we choose to live in that city right now? And the answer was no. Uh, there's so many other exciting places, nothing against Basingstoke. Um, so let's go and explore other places. Um, but I think you've got to work out, is your business able to cope with that? Do you need to see your clients? And then secondly, how comfortable are you going to different places? Attention, please. Flight 631 for Salt Lake City, Denver, and New York is now boarding at gate number seven. Board flight 631, please. Attention, please. Flight 549 from Miami and Intermediate Cities. Now Down to Boston, over to El Paso, into Chicago, out to Portland, Oregon. Nine and one half hours from coast to coast. Four and one half hours from Jackson, Mississippi to Detroit, Michigan. North, south, east, west. Businessmen in particular travel the airlines. Buying, selling, developing and organizing. The man with the briefcase, weaving the pattern of American business, carrying contracts and plans and specifications, breaking bottlenecks, meeting deadlines. The American businessman, transferring from airliner to air taxi from one airplane to another, flying on to smaller towns to plants and mines and mills, using the air taxi as the quickest and most efficient means of reaching his destination. Air taxis are convenient. So I have a lot of clients who are digital nomads and um, who are digital nomads for all sorts of reasons. Um, some of them are tax reasons. Um, so um, <laughs> Very good ones. Because obviously if you don't, uh, and there are different countries uh, of, say, of origin have different have different rules and regulations. Um, so if you're from Germany, for example, so I'm, I'm, I'm German, um, so I have a lot of German-speaking clients, it's particularly strict. Um, the, the tax situation, of course, also... Well, if you are a U.S. citizen, then you have to pay tax anywhere. You know, it doesn't matter where you live. You have to pay tax in the U.S. anyway. Um, but um, there's also like very basic things like um, like opening bank accounts. So banks don't, don't really work with that sort of concept uh, of being nomadic. So you have to create some sort of identity, you know, for uh, to work with banks. Otherwise, you will not be able, able to get a bank account. Um, like saying, you know, you're based in X place. Right. You run the business from X. I mean, the bank will ask you, where do you physically run the business from? And if you can't prove that, then it's very difficult to get a bank account, right? Yes, they want an address. No, they want an address. So, of course, there are solutions around that, but um, some of the things we do have for that, right? But um, it's, it's the, the world is not what I'm saying is, and of course, governments as well are not as far developed yet in their thought and organizational process. So, they think like 200 years back and they think like in Victorian times. So, you sit around the fire with your family, you live there and, you know, you, this is where everything is organized and, you know, this is, you know, how it works. And, and you get a monthly payslip and, you know. You get a monthly payslip, right. And, job for several you know, years or what? One job. Right, exactly. So, um, so this whole, um, so, so basically we have, we have clients like um, who are in these sort of, tip, you'd say, typical industries. 
sort of consulting, you know, programming, development, design, um, consi- uh, advertising, you know, digital marketing, affiliate marketing, make big amount, huge amounts of money. Um, and um, so they kind of travel from place to place. So they live three months here, three months there, three months in this place, three months in another place. Um, and um, I mean, again, it takes a certain someone. You have to have that in your nature, right? I mean, it sounds fun when you think about it. But a lot of people, well, it's going to happen. I have all my friends in this city. You know, I'm from this city in Germany. And my mom is there. And, you know, this piece is there. It's, it's very difficult for a lot of people, even if it has many benefits, to actually do it. I mean, it's like it sounds great, the idea. Mm-hmm. But actually do it. Because if you don't do it properly you end up with a whole host of problems, including tax problems, mm-hmm. and you're going to be very bad off. Right? Is, is that your experience as well? So actually doing it, it sound, always sounds good, but doing it, it again takes determination and actually a bit of, you know, what's the right word? I mean, you know, it's, it's a bit of, like, you know, taking the plunge, right? Mm-hmm. Jumping with the parachute. I mean, it takes a bit of courage, right? To do that, to leave that system of supposed security and safety that we think we're in, you know, it's, it's also, because also everybody else is going to tell you all your friends, I mean, unless you have all friends in that who live the same life, they, they're saying, oh, wow, really, are you sure? I mean, is that not a big risk? And you sell all your stuff and what is this? I mean, what was the reaction of your friends and family when you told them what you're doing? Um, I think because we've been on quite of a journey, I tend to do everything the opposite of traditional They're going to say, oh, it's one of Alan's phases. It's one of Alan's phases, (laughs) some kind of crazy idea. What's he at again? Um, He'll grow out of it or he'll get bored of it. (laughs) It's like, what's he doing now? Um, But no, it's actually got to the stage now where they have seen me. They've seen me build this financial independence. They've seen me build the company I've done. Uh, We did a lot of experimenting in 2019 and we only lived in the UK for sort of four months out of the 12 uh, and most of the time we did an experiment we went to LA for two months to write a movie and work on a TV show we've done lots of experiments so it wasn't a shock when my wife quit her high-paying corporate job it was a shock and that was very much the family was like what are you doing this is crazy uh, and they were not necessarily that supportive. Um, but I think because we've been doing all these different things, it's built up. I think if it comes out of your blue, so doing what we're talking about, building businesses, being entrepreneurial, traveling around the world, is so out of the normal script that people follow in life that your friends who follow the normal script are going to be challenged by it. Your family's going to think it's a bit weird and that will cause you rocky bumps as you go. And you're going to have to be strong to stand against that. And I think it's also, you know, nowadays it's fashionable to be an entrepreneur, right? But I think nobody thinks about, I mean, the the people who think it's fashionable being an entrepreneur, they don't really think about, I guess, pop-up business school. They think about venture capital. They think about like nice offices, you know, in central London. But this idea of... Um, With free snacks. Right, free snacks. Like this idea of bootstrapping it, you know, this idea of um, 
if necessary, I mean, somebody told me once, you know, if necessary, I live in a caravan, you know. <laughs> yeah, we will yeah. make this work. <laughs> right, we will make this work, you know. <laughs> this is not what most people think about entrepreneurship, yet the reality is, in my experience and also my clients, most entrepreneurs, 90% are actually that type of entrepreneur who are bootstrapping it, who are, you know, they do whatever, you know, they run it from their bedroom, they they have a job and then they start, they have a job and then they um, leave the job at some point when they can afford it, right? So, for, I mean, for the overwhelming amount of businesses, that is the actual reality and what we think about entrepreneurialism, Silicon Valley and tech startups, is actually only a very small fraction, right? Do you agree? It's a tiny percentage of it. Um, and some crazy percentage, over 80% of small business, uh, like one or two man bands in the UK. It is very risky starting from debt and doing one of those high role, high tech entrepreneurship, but that's the image everyone gets. And I think it's this idea of business. If you say the word business, business could mean anything from this hotel to Google to uh Someone food standing truck. on the strike street or yeah, food truck on the corner could mean anything. Mm -hmm. But if you say business, people think big business and they think of that view. And it's when you're launching a small business, it is not glamorous. Maybe we should change our name to the unglamorous business school. Yeah, very good point. Yeah. Uh, but it's not. It's it's gritty. You're getting out there and selling, you're putting yourself on the line, you're being rejected. Um, it takes a lot of courage and a lot of energy. Mm -hmm. I think it's similar with business travel. Yeah. Um, in my early career, I ran, a, I won a contract with uh, Air Arabia. Mm -hmm. I was teaching them uh, customer service and different skills. They flew me out to uh, Dubai near Sharjah, stayed for two weeks in a nice hotel with a swimming pool. Like it sounds glamorous, but the reality is I spent most of the day in a corporate training room and then was on my own in a random hotel in the evening mm -hmm. in a country that I did not necessarily fit into at that point. Uh, and the reality of business travel is very different mm -hmm. to the glamorous view. But I do think there is a way to do it where it can work for you. And I think being nomadic, the version of travel my wife and I want to live is slow travel, where we go to a place and live there for two to three months and then move to the next place for two to three months. I think where traveling gets exhausting is where you go here and then travel the next day and then two days later you go to another place. And I think if you're constantly bouncing around, it can be exhausting because there's a cognitive load to every time you go to a new place. You've got to figure it all out again, where to buy food, what to do. Got to figure it all out. You said before you have a colleague who is launching um, the pop-up business school in the US. So how did, how did that how did that happen? How did you... I mean, I, I said to you before, you know, um, sort of the conventional wisdom is to say, well, okay, I set up a brick and mortar here. And once we have reached a certain threshold, I guess, in turnover or whatever the metric is, then we are going to, you know, we're going to send someone to San Francisco or New York and they're going to replicate the same model there. Um, they're going to replicate the same model there. So they get a small office, start to hire people. Again, very brick and mortar and, and very traditional. So you are doing it differently. What, 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 was your, what was your approach to that? So my approach has actually been to get out there and tell everyone my vision. Um, we've expanded to France recently. Uh, how that happened, I 
made it onto a podcast uh, in the financial independence world called The Mad Scientist. I was talking about pop-up, enthusing about starting businesses for nothing. Um, and the head of entrepreneurship from one of the biggest business schools in the world heard me speak. And they were running a program in Paris to help women entrepreneurs uh, from some of the harder to reach communities to get going. And he had a revelation that uh, business plans and loans weren't helping them. There was a different way to do it. And he reached out. And then we're talking about launching it there. Now we're rolling out across France. Uh, Morocco came from a similar thing. New Zealand came from me speaking about it on uh, LinkedIn. I think it's about telling everyone, like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm planning on doing and inspiring people. And it's incredible who, if you put yourself out there positively with passion and with energy, it is incredible who comes out of the woodwork and says, that sounds great. How can I help you? And that's definitely how the first course in America happened as well. Where was the first course? Uh, in Colorado, in Longmont. And actually, like, this will sound like a random example, but I flew myself to Ecuador uh, and I went on a financial independence retreat and I went to learn. I was a participant on the course. I was telling people what I did. They said, that's interesting. You should do a talk. So I hijacked the conference, did my own workshop on how do you build a business for free. Uh, and two of the people there said, this is really interesting. And I said, well, I've always wanted to run one in America and they helped me make it happen. Uh, and I think it's incredible. Like, If I could tell the people listening to your podcast one thing, it would be put yourself out there, tell people what you want to do and start talking to as many people as possible. And it's incredible who comes out of the woodwork to support you. So just on this first event you had in the US, um, can you tell us a little bit about where it was, who turned up? Because we've heard about your first ever event um, in the UK. And, and you were also saying that in the UK, often it's councils or housing associations who will be um, sponsoring or putting money behind the events. What, what about out there? So this particular event was sponsored by uh, three corporate sponsors, um, Bluehost, which is a web development company, um, Treehouse, which they do coding and learning, and Betterment, uh, which is a robo-investor service. They invested in it, and uh, we ran it in Longmont, Colorado, which is a tiny town north of Denver. Not tiny, actually. It's got 100,000 people. Tiny for America. And like what, in a shopping mall or what was the setting there? It was on Main Street. So we had a shop on the side of Main Street. Uh, it was with a guy called Pete, whose online moniker is Mr. Money Mustache. Um, You're we, wearing his T-shirt? I'm wearing his T-shirt right He's now. He's very famous. He is a very famous blogger in financial independence. He's a really nice guy as well. Uh, and he lent us his co-working space to run the event in. And we had people from all over the country turned up. And we spent two weeks building businesses and it was a huge amount of fun. Mm. And I think I love the grittiness of turning up somewhere completely random with a set of chairs and then sitting with people and going, okay, so you want to start a business? Let's do it now. Uh, and they get a bit scared to start with. <laughs> But then we actually start to do it and it turns into a really good fun session. Yeah, that's not what they expected, right? They didn't expect to start right now yeah it's like no no you're just going to teach me how yeah yeah just teach me how i don't want to actually do it no no i want to launch now 
<laughs> that's quite unnerving. And I've had a lot of those situations when I stare at people and go, okay, let's make the call now. And it's a very uncomfortable moment. Yeah. <laughs> but that's how you make things happen. If you want to live your dreams, you need to take action. If you never make the call, send the email, launch a website, you'll never be successful. But so many people like to think about the idea. Yes, yes, yes. So I'm wondering though, so you talked about this first event, which Mr. Money Mustache helped with. I have to say, I once read a blog of his and one of his money-saving tips was for snacks when you're on a hike was to drink, um, to drink a spoon of oil because of the amount of calories. <laughs> so and I was like, that is the last thing I want to do in the middle of a hike, even if it saves me money or whatever. Anyway, that did stick with me as, hmm. But um, anyhow, so this first event, um, what kind of people were turning up? What sort of businesses were they sort of wanting to launch? Also compared to the UK, because it's quite interesting to see um, the different types of business people want to launch or just the impact of the economy, who's, who's, you know, wanting to start a business. There was all sorts of incredible people. Uh, there was food businesses, like a similar range of businesses. There was one lady who had developed a spray that you could spray into your mouth uh, and you tasted the spray and it sated your hunger. So instead of going for a snack chocolate bar, you used the spray and it suppressed your hunger. Um, As a money-saving tip, Mr. Money Moustache would probably be, be into that product. I, I think he's a very stoic person, so he would probably say, just experience the hunger and get over it. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but... Yeah, there's every type of product you could imagine. There was a lady who was a vet, uh, and I don't know whether she actually turned into a business or whether she's gone on to do it as part of the company, but we found out that vets have the highest rate of suicide of all the professional careers. No um, and for a whole variety of reasons. One is they have a similar level to debt in the US uh, to doctors. Mm but a tiny fraction of the earning income. Um, so they get very heavily in debt. They're around pets being put down a lot. There's all sorts of things go into it. And she wanted to help solve that problem because it was a real issue. Um, and she's working out how to do that and was contacting some of the larger veterinary organizations to get support to help the vets. Uh, there's some people with some incredibly passionate projects that really want to make a difference in the world. Uh, and there's no reason why you can't generate an income and change at the same time. So we have this, um, a, a lot of listeners who have a successful business, for example, in Europe, in, in the UK or Germany or other countries. And um, so they have made that plunge, you know, and they feel kind of comfortable and they are more or less successful. And um, for them, a big hurdle in their mind and maybe like a brick wall is this um, idea of expanding into another country. It's, it's almost worse than starting the business because when they start the business, they know the conditions, they know the environment, but going into another country is, is a bit, even a bigger hurdle, you know, for, for some people or, or they, and I experience a lot, what you experience with um, the entrepreneurs that you teach, that those walls are completely artificial. They don't really exist. You know, as you said, you can start a business in the US without money. You know, you don't need to set up a, a big, you know, brick and mortar thing you don't need to raise a lot of funds um you don't need to you know you, you can start it um probably and we, we discussed that with some of our guests on the podcast uh, who did that 
you know, from the UK. They didn't have an office there. I mean, okay, they traveled there. You know, you need to basically know what you're talking about. I mean, talking to people you said before, as I think incredibly important, right? Um, but I think that would be a special variety of your pop-up business school is, you know, how to transition then or how to expand then um, or how to do the same in, in the U.S. W what do you think about these? I mean, do you agree that there are a lot of, a lot of the walls that they don't really exist? They're just in your mind? I definitely agree. Most of the barriers we put in front of ourselves are in our mind or have been taught to us by traditional business education or society has taught us this is the way to do things. And once we get locked into that way, it's difficult to see round. Um, I think as a practical step, if I was thinking about taking my business to a new country, the first question I'm asking is, who's my customer? who's going to buy in that country and can I contact them online some way before I turn up? And I guarantee you can. If you can get yourself on an industry podcast in that other country, if you can get yourself in a Facebook group with those customers and start to talk to them about what you want to do. We do this in this country. We're thinking of coming here. We're planning on it. Start the conversations With today's online tools and the reach of media, is unbelievably quick to get to the people you want to and start talking to them. And don't really worry about, at that stage, about corporate structures, paperwork, taxes. I, mean, I think the most important thing, as you said before, is the first sale, right? And, and it doesn't really matter. I mean, unless you sell like a, a multi-million dollar project, but then it doesn't matter anyway because you can afford lawyers. But otherwise, if, if you're just selling a widget, you know, for like 40 pounds in the US, it doesn't matter. The tax doesn't matter, you know. Sell one. Sell one. And then we'll yeah, figure exactly. it out. Then you figure yeah. it out, right? And uh, it's not like we're not going to pay the tax because we are going to pay the tax. We are going to report it. But I think what everyone wants to do is have all of that figured out before they launch. And you're never going to work it all out before you launch because there's always going to be something that comes out of left field, something you don't understand. And you can spend years trying to learn the tax code of the US before you even launch. Well, you get it done, you sell something, and then you start to learn very quickly. Then you have a good reason to learn. Exactly. So I always like to tell my clients, you know, um, it's all uh, so corporate structures and all that. This is all good. But let's pay it. Let's pay it with the income that you already make there, rather than investing in it. You know, and and or, you know, or, or you know, having a huge expenditure. Make the money first, and let's pay it from that. And it's a lot easier. Then you can justify it easily, right? I love that advice. Right. Um, so um, you don't need to do this. Um, it's, it's always great, and everybody's going to tell you you need this expensive thing and that expensive thing before you can do it. But the reality is, you need to get the sales done. If you figure that out, everything else in business typically falls into place, right? Would you agree? Well, you can definitely hire someone to help you do the paperwork. You can hire someone to help you do the tax return, the structure, whatever you need to do. It's more difficult or more expensive to hire someone to get the first sale. Yes. You're better off doing that yourself and hiring the other elements. Mm. And I would completely agree. Let's get on and start. Now, obviously, we have to be mindful of the laws and the tax code. Mm -hmm. um, But if you haven't sold anything, you've not got anything to be mindful of. Exactly. I just wanted to quickly ask, um, so you talked about being on all, all these industry podcasts and you named some of the countries where you pop-up business school has gone. Um, with you guys, is it more the case that, um, say, someone in, I don't know, New Zealand, have you been? To, have you done 
Give me a country you've done classes in. There are, there are classes in New Zealand. Okay. I have not been yet. Um, so did someone there like say, hey, we'd love to have you here? Or did, did, you know, do you actually think, hey, maybe people in the Czech Republic or Sweden or something, they could really do with poor business school? How does it work where you go? Uh, most of the time it's people reaching out to us. Mm -hmm. But the only time people will reach out to you is when you put yourself out there. So we have put ourselves out there on all these podcasts and blogs and as wide as we can. Um, and the guy in New Zealand, his name's Tony. He's a really nice guy. He reached out and said, I've seen you on LinkedIn. I've seen what you're doing. That's made me look at your website. I'm inspired by what you're doing. Could we bring this to New Zealand? Mm -hmm. I was like, sure, I don't see why not. Let's work it out. And he licensed the course and the brand from us and then he ran six pop-ups across New Zealand last year mm. and they have a team out there that's doing it and he's building businesses and changing lives out there. So he kind of works for you now in a way? Well no he runs his own franchise license mm. I know you could call it whatever you want. He runs the team in uh, New Zealand and he's been doing that. Mm. He's taken the course content, the concepts, the, the principles of it He's changed the tax day to be relevant to New Zealand and he runs that out there mm -hmm. and he's built a, a nice little business doing that. He really has. But all of these leads, these crazy things that happen to us come from us going first. And I, if I was going to say one thing to your audience is, this is the cheesiest expression I've ever heard, but it's one that really helps me. If it's to be, it's up to me. Like no one else is going to make this stuff happen for you. The only reason people come to me is I've gone out there first and put myself out there. If you don't go first, if you don't contact people, post, tell people your vision, inspire people, it doesn't happen at all. And that's also one of the few things that you control, you can control yourself, right? So you depend on anyone else. You determine that yourself. And I think the other important point is with this thing, it's also a numbers game. So you, the, you just the more you do it, right, uh, the more likely is something is to come out of it. So if you do it 10 times and you have no success, I mean, that's just life. I mean, the odds are, you know, you need to do it like, you know, maybe 20 times, maybe 30 times. You know? But Alan, something I wanted to ask about is that um, with a lot of the founders or the companies we've spoken to, um, this, whole, um, this whole concept of culture shock or culture difference comes up. Um, you know, you're based in one country and then you expand somewhere else and there's, you know, different expectations from customers, from employees, you know, different way of doing things. How does that work in a nomadic company where, you know, you're going into different countries which might have completely different views on business, who goes into business, what do you want out of it? How do you kind of grapple with that? I think there are similarities and differences. Um, One of my biggest mistakes was I went to uh, the United Arab Emirates and I was running a course there and I did a handshaking exercise at the start. I set up the exercise and then everyone just stared blankly at me and they go, well, the men don't shake hands with the women, the women don't shake hands with the men. And my whole exercise fell to pieces instantly. And that's one of the most painful learning moments right at the start. And you're like, okay, how do I bounce back from this? So I've been culturally inappropriate instantly. <laughs> um, but we bounce back and you get over it. And there is this, like, no matter how much reading you do, there's going to be instances where it goes wrong. And I think it's more important how you respond to them 
than they happen themselves. And I think if you respond positively, if you apologize, you can get over it. On the other side, I think there's some incredible, diff incredible similarities. Um, and where this really struck me, uh, we ran a course a year ago in Namibia in Africa. And we were in the capital city in Windhoek before the course. And I remember being stood uh, in the capital city, staring in this wall full of posters. And there was posters for, need help writing your business plan? You can help hire us to do it. Need help getting a loan to start your business? You can help hire us doing it. And the culture of you need a business plan and you need a loan, every country I've been to believes that is the way to launch a business. <laughs> That's and interesting. I don't care where we've been, Morocco, Namibia, France, doesn't matter where we've been, that's the belief. I need a business plan alone, then I'll be successful. Um, <laughs> so I think there are some global similarities. And I'm sure if we went into a certain place in a certain place, it wouldn't be there. But I've not found one yet. Um, so I think there are similarities that you can find that are the same no matter where you go. And do you have different types of people coming to pop up in different countries or people having different reasons for wanting to start a business? Oh, the reasons are so varied. Yeah, the reasons are unbelievably varied. But kind of culturally specific or to do with like the nature of the economy or just people's beliefs about who runs a business, what's the purpose of it? That's a good question. You've, there's a long pause there because I'm thinking, <laughs> wow, I've never been asked that before. Um, it's the first time I've ever been asked that question. I think there are similarities of we want to earn money to look after our family. We want to earn money to look after ourselves. There are people who are launching businesses for very personal reasons. We had a lady who was launching an organic skincare cream company. And she was doing it because her mother had died of skin cancer. And she, the doctors had said it was probably related to some of the stuff she put on her skin. And she didn't want anyone to ever go through that. So her brand, her whole thing was to change that. Um, so I think there's so many personal reasons that people have for launching businesses and wanting to change things. Um, the one thing I have noticed is the size of your why, like why are you doing this, is directly related to how much success you have. If you have a huge why, you will bust through all sorts of problems and you'll keep going. If you're doing it because you think it might be a fun thing to do, if it gets hard, you're gonna give up quick. So I think that size of that determination and sometimes the people with less money or in harder positions, have a bigger why and more desire to do it. They just need the tools. To, to wrap up, um, what we, like, we like to kind of get some do's or don'ts from the people we speak to. Um, what are do's and don'ts for starting a business and also um, running a company nomadically or even working nomadically? So things to avoid when you're starting a business. First up is start with sales not with having all the legalities in place. Um, most people do the legalities first or building the website or doing all the stuff where they don't actually have to talk to a customer because they're afraid of rejection. My suggestion is do sales first. If it sells, 
build the business. If it doesn't, try something else. The second item is when people are talking about sales, uh, I say, oh, you started your business. And they go, yeah, yeah, I did it. I sent some emails. I'm like, excellent, how many? And they go, 10. Go, okay, so you've ten, eight, sent 10 emails. What's happened now? Oh, I'm waiting for them to respond. And I just want to drop my head in my hands at that point. If you contact 10 people and then wait for them to come back to you, nothing's ever going to happen. You have to contact hundreds of people and you have to follow up relentlessly to be able to actually get there. So I think it's the volume of people and never wait for someone to get back to you. Uh, and the final one is having the confidence to ask for the money. Asking the awkward question. What I've discovered is entrepreneurs, when they first start, don't like to ask the awkward question and wait. And the awkward question is, okay, so you like the product, excellent. Would you like to pay by credit card? <laughs> then you like pause and lean in and wait for the answer. But they kind of bottle it and go, well, maybe we could do this or maybe we could do that. Um, so I think if you're planning on launching a business, ask the awkward question and revel in the uncomfortable pause that comes afterwards. You've just been listening to Move Your Business to the United States, the podcast for Mount Bonnell Advisors. I'm Nastran Tavakoli-Farr, and we just heard Alan Donegan of the Pop-Up Business School. Our sound engineer is Emmett Glynn, and our podcast manager is Navena Paunovic. We also use some samples from the Prelinger archives. They have some really cool historical material from America. Do check them out. We'll be back in two weeks where we'll hear from another company who've been expanding into the US. In the meantime, send us your questions to info at We've put that in the show notes. Okay, speak to you soon.